Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Wednesday evening where we continue our reflections into this all-important book, the Book of Revelation, a study that has had us looking at a wide range of topics, certainly all that is applicable to this book itself. Now, I have been getting a number of questions, and there was one particular question I received out from my last program Specifically, the question was, uh, what insights can be gained if you just look at the, the various names of evil, um, how Satan identifies himself, just not as Satan, but also as the tempter, uh, the devil, Lucifer, and others. So what I thought we would do before we get back into chapter 10 is uh, take up that question and do so uh, mindful of the temptation narrative. Now, why the temptation narrative? Well, If you read the temptation narrative closely, especially in the Gospel of Matthew, you see something happening. It's Jesus identifying the adversary with its different names, and there's something to be said about the progression of names. And so I want to talk about that, specifically the names of the devil, uh, the tempter, and Satan. Okay, these are the names we have in the temptation narrative, the devil, the tempter, and Satan. So now what can we say about the devil? Satan is first identified as the devil in the temptation narrative. Well, the devil comes from the Greek diabolos or diabolain, which means to throw across or to scatter. Now this should be contrasted with Mary's pondering in both the infancy narrative and of course the finding of Jesus in the temple. Why? The Greek word for pondering is symbolain, Symbolane, which means to throw together, to compare, and weigh facts, or even to piece together. In effect, what we find in Luke chapter 2, both in the birth of Jesus and the finding of Jesus in the temple, Mary balancing and counterbalancing, weighing and measuring the revelation that she was the mother of God who is now a baby. She did this by keeping close to her heart the value of everything she counted. Of course, that is a phrase we read in Luke chapter 2, verse 19 and verse 51, keeping close to her heart. Essentially, what we see in Mary's pondering, her symbolane in the Greek, is not only a weighing, but also a piecing together of a series of events that she was slowly being made to understand. Mary does not boast of her accomplishment or achievement of becoming the mother of God. Rather, She fades into the background until she is made to see each moment in its proper season. Now contrast Mary's pondering, that symbolane of throwing together or piecing together, with the Greek for devil, diabolos or diabolane, which means again, to throw across, to scatter. Now many of you can hear in the diabolane, the English word diabolical, right? Which we often generically translate as belonging to Satan. My dear friends, Satan's function is to leave us scattered, thrown asunder, confused about everyday life. 
We overcome the devil's tactics by piecing together, making sense of, in God's grace, each situation and person we encounter in our everyday life. In other words, we overcome the devil's diabolane, okay, by imitating Mary's symbolane. Indeed, as Genesis 3.15 reminds us, there is enmity between Satan and the woman. The woman, oh, by the way, we will be reading about in a couple of chapters. Now, in the temptation narrative, the word for devil can also mean accuser. Accuser. Now, this is interesting because when you hear that word, you probably think of, what, accusation. Now, we might think of it in the context of one accusing another, yes, and we'll talk about that, but I think really this word has as much to do with the way in which we accuse ourselves more than anything else. Now, with Satan as the accuser, we ought to consider the importance of our own self-worth, huh? of our love of self. And now here, we are not talking about the love of self that is blind and boastful, but rather the love of self that acknowledges that we are weak and wounded at the same time that we are amazing children of God. It's that unique combination of humility and gratitude that allows us to acknowledge, even if we don't understand it, that God loves us deeply, that he loves us for a reason, and that alone is proof that we are lovable. We are indeed, my friends, lovable. Matthew Kelly, in one of his more recent works, Rediscover Jesus, focuses in on this very thing that we are talking about. He says this, when we love ourselves, we become less interested in what others think about us and more interested in what God thinks. When we love ourselves, we don't do things just to get noticed or praised or accepted. He offers for us here a practical example. How many gifts did you give to others last year? And think about that question. <laughs> Most of us give dozens of gifts to other people every year. Birthdays, Christmas, weddings, anniversaries. These gifts are given to friends, family, colleagues, and perhaps even strangers. If we give a gift with love of self in our hearts, we do it because we want to and we don't have any expectations. And there's the key, my friends, expectation. Why? Because what is on the other side of expectation? but disappointment. And what is on the other side of disappointment, but resentment. If we have a love of self, that proper love of self, there is no expectations. I mean, sure, we hope people like the gifts we give them, but whether they do or not, we know it was a thoughtful and generous thing to do. We cannot control the way another person responds to a gift. Only the way the gift is given, that's the bottom line. Now, as Matthew Kelly continues to reflect, if we give a gift without a healthy self-love, we may or may not be doing it because we actually want to. A gift given without self-love comes with what but expectations. And when we give such a gift, we want the recipient to thank us, to praise us, to like us, to favor us. In this case, we will only feel good about giving the gift if the recipient responds in exactly the way we want him or her to respond. And if you've experienced this before, you know if the recipient doesn't like the gift, we will be disappointed and our sense of self will be diminished. You see, that's the key. Because why? We gave the love, hoping for love and acceptance in return. And Satan is in that because he's constantly saying, you are not the crown jewel of creation. And brothers and sisters, as we are all created in the image and likeness of God, 
We are all crown jewels, reflections of God. Now, that being said, there is something to be said about what we share in when we accuse others of wrongdoing in the absence of reverence and gentleness. We've talked about those two virtues, reverence and gentleness, a great deal. When there's an absence of those virtues, when there's an absence of humility and love, when we are correcting our brothers and sisters in Christ, this can easily turn into a kind of accusation. What could be said of what one does when they judge another without reason to judge? This, my dear friends, is very dangerous. You do not judge what you do not see, that which is subjective, hidden, unknown, unseen, but you judge what is objective, revealed, known, seen. When you place a judgment on what you don't see, you sin. So we have to be very, very careful there. And then there's the reality that we might all slip into, the pointing of the finger, claiming that it was his or her fault, when in the end, the very thing that you are talking about might very well have been your fault. When we accuse others of wrongdoing, especially when you have no idea if they have done something wrong, we actually share in the very thing Satan wants us to share in, what he does when he is at his best, accusing others of being less than they really are. Brothers and sisters, we are called to love and mindful what love is, willing the good of the other for the sake of other. We do it by the grace of God all the time. Okay? All right, so we can draw all of that from that one word, the devil, right? That means not only that which is diabolical, to scatter, to throw across, but also to accuse. How about the tempter? In the temptation narrative, we also read in Matthew chapter 4, verse 3, the tempter said to him. Now, we ought to pause here and reflect upon something very important as it relates to the original text here. To show the essence of a person, both Greek and Hebrew often use a verbal participle to construct a noun with the definite article, okay? So the result grammatically is that the attribute is applied absolutely to the person in question. What does that mean? Well, we find in the liturgy, God referred as to what? The one having mercy, right? The one having mercy. And how about Our Lady? In Luke chapter 1, verse 28, we read what? The one who has been graced. The sacred name of God is probably itself such an absolute principle construction, meaning something like the one who is being. The present passage in Matthew chapter 4, verse 3, refers to Satan as the one who is tempting. So what is going on there? The tempter par excellence is he who absolutely, right, definitively places obstacles on one's path to God. It is the law of being that one thing must influence another according to its own nature and disposition. I mean, if God is substantial charity, which by nature is diffusive of itself, then the devil is the principle of contradiction and negation that wants to interrupt the flow of love from God. So what do I mean by this absolute contradiction? Well, I touched upon this uh, the other day. 
if Satan is the hero of the world, the Lord of the earthly-minded who disrupts the divine at every step, then Christ is the divine hero who disrupts the earthly-minded in their wicked ways with the revelation of humility, love, and truth. Satan says, trust in me. Jesus says, trust in me. (laughs) (laughs) Satan says, trust in me. And remember the best translation of mammon. In the Hebrew, it's not only trust in me, but trust in wealth. So when Satan says, trust in me, the idea here is trust in your possessions, trust in wealth, trust in power. Our Lord's counteroffer is what? His own fatherhood. Trust in me. Entrust yourself to my heart, my merciful heart. Beautiful. Okay, how about Satan? So in the temptation narrative, we have the devil, we have the tempter, and then we have Satan. And we know in Matthew 4, verse 10, we read, Away with you, Satan. Uh-huh. Now, Satan is best translated as adversary and enemy. It is the name consecrated by Jewish tradition to the dark forces that opposes itself to God's life-giving designs for man's salvation. And again, in the temptation narrative, this completes the, the triad of names given here to the evil one. Devil, accuser, the tempter, right? The one who tempts, and now Satan or adversary. This variety of names indicates that the force of evil never remains abstract. Possessing intelligence, it knows how to construct detailed plots to assail man. And as the Lord suffers temptation after after temptation, he peels away the layers of sly disguise and reveals evil for what it is. We could say that Jesus counters the specificity of evil with the specificity of good, so as to remove man from that region of moral impotence where he had been confined for so long. In so many ways, we could say that much of the victory lies in the ability to recognize, name, and thus exercise, E-X-O-R-C-I-Z-E, exercise the forces that oppose our spiritual progress. As adversary or enemy, we ought to consider what but warfare, spiritual warfare. When you hear those words, you think of opponent. How do you defeat an opponent? Well, you do everything and anything it takes to get ready to defeat your opponent. Well, in the spiritual life, what is that? Well, as a Christian and Catholic, that's living the sacramental life, especially in in confession and the Eucharist, and praying, praying often. What does Paul say? Pray without ceasing. So we pray often, not only the formal prayers of the Mass, right, and for that matter, the divine office and the rosary, but also the informal prayers, that just more regular conversation with God. Conversation with God, prayer, right, itself is the most powerful weapon we have against the adversary. Why? Because if we are in conversation with God, we can then identify the ways in which Satan works. We can anticipate it, if you will. And when we encounter it, we can see it for what it is. And then we can act prudently. Remember what the word prudence means. The word prudence comes from the Latin prudentia, which means sagaciousness or sagacity, that acute awareness, huh? 
You have, you have an acute awareness into a particular situation and you make the prudential decision. So there you have it. <laughs> the longer response to that question in relationship to what insights can be gained by identifying the evil one's names, uh, the devil, the tempter, Satan. And I hope that it was beneficial to do so within the context of the temptation narrative because certainly in the temptation narrative... We have those progressions. We have Satan revealing himself slowly. Okay, with that, let us jump back into the book of Revelation. We are in chapter 10, and why don't I go ahead and read verses 8 to 11. So this will wrap up chapter 10. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, Go, take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went up to the angel and told him to give me the small scroll. He said to me, Take and swallow it. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will taste as sweet as honey. I took the small scroll from the angel's hand and swallowed it. In my mouth it was like sweet honey, but when I had eaten it, my stomach turned sour. Then someone said to me, You must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, Tongues and kings. Okay, so again, John hears the voice from heaven that told him not to write what the seven thunders said, now instructing him to become an actor in the vision he has seen. Go, take the scroll. Incidentally, the word for scroll here is the same one used several times back in chapter 5. Moreover, the Greek word translated lies open is in the same verbal form as in chapter 10, verse 2, where it is translated more precisely as, that had been opened. Now, what happens next resembles an experience of the prophet Ezekiel, and all the commentaries here go to the prophet Ezekiel, chapter 2, verse 9, to chapter 3, verse 3. So why don't we go ahead and turn our Bibles to Ezekiel, chapter 2, verse 9. There we read, It was then I saw a hand stretched out to me. In it was a written scroll. He unrolled it before me. It was covered with writing front and back. Written on it was lamentation, wailing, woe. He said to me, Son of man, eat what you find here. Eat this scroll. Then go, speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he gave me the scroll to eat. Son of man, he said to me, feed your stomach and fill your belly with this scroll I am giving you. I ate it, and it was as sweet as honey in my mouth, rich. So the scroll given to Ezekiel here had writing on the what front and back, like the one John saw in Revelation chapter 5, verse 1, right? Now Ezekiel's scroll was opened before him by the hand of God or an angel. John is presented with the scroll that he saw the lamb opened seal by seal. John, like Ezekiel, is commanded to eat the scroll. What do we read? Take and swallow it, and is told that it will taste as sweet as honey, just like Ezekiel's scroll. The image of the prophet eating the scroll provides a vivid image for us, a vivid image of divine inspiration. The prophet receives and assimilates God's word until it becomes a part of him. Huh? Until it becomes a part of him. 
He then expresses it as best as he can in writing or speech, aided by the Holy Spirit. So for both Ezekiel and John, receiving and speaking the word of the Lord is sweet as honey. Does this not echo Jeremiah's experience in chapter 15, verse 16? When I found your words, I devoured them. Your words were my joy, the happiness of my heart. Now, John is warned, however, that eating the scroll will turn his stomach sour. Well, this also echoes Ezekiel's experience. Does not Ezekiel report that the message is full of lamentation, wailing woe, that leaves him in bitterness in the heat of his spirit? John's experience of taking and eating the scroll conforms to what the mighty angel told him. In my mouth it was like sweet honey, but when I had eaten it, my stomach turned sour. The sour or bitter effect on John may indicate that like Ezekiel, he receives a word of judgment or that he anticipates the hardships that await God's people and what lies ahead. One thing that should never be underestimated is the way in which all of the great saints through the ages have taught us what it means to be in solidarity with the body of Christ. What did we hear on the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who who grieve man's earthly plight. Blessed are those who foresee destruction and suffer a kind of interior suffering or interior pain. Now, the climax of John's vision is the instruction he now receives. The wording is vague about who is speaking, but there is no doubt that John is receiving a divine commission, right? Then someone said to me, you must prophesy again. John is being commanded to prophesy the contents of the scroll he has eaten. Now, this is a, a new phase in his prophetic ministry, a new phase that will reveal the context of the scroll that the Lamb received from God in chapter 5. A single clue about this content is given. While Ezekiel's message was a warning to the house of Israel, John's message is to or about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. Certainly, the fourfold list points to its worldwide significance. The mention of kings also indicates that the message touches on how political power is exercised on the earth. In the end, what we are made to appreciate is the universal nature of this covenant. Remember that the word Catholic comes from the Greek kataholike, which simply means universal. No longer are we bound to a national covenant, like that between Israel and God, but an international covenant, a covenant of all peoples. So this is part of what is going on here. Okay, let us turn our attention to chapter 11. But before we do so, now, Michael Barber makes an interesting point, and it's certainly something we ought to consider, that interpreters debate whether the temple in Revelation 11 that we will be reading about here is the earthly or the heavenly temple. In some ways, it would seem to be the earthly temple. For example, the, the outer court of this temple is given over to the Gentiles to destroy. If we were talking about a heavenly temple, this certainly would be impossible. Likewise, it seems absurd to suggest that those worshiping God in heaven need protection. At the same time, the measuring of the temple in Revelation 11 
is clearly drawing on Ezekiel chapters 40 to 48, which speaks of the measuring of God's restored eschatological temple. It would be strange for John to draw imagery from this eschatological temple in a way that describes the destruction of this temple. It appears then that Jesus has both temples in mind, the earthly and the heavenly. Again, when we say eschatological, we are talking about heavenly, right? The word eschatology comes from the Greek eschaton, which just simply means the end times. Now, the Jews believed the worship of the earthly temple in some way was connected with the worship in heaven. In fact, the angels in Revelation performed rituals that the Levitical priest carried out in Jerusalem. Did we not talk about that back in the beginning of chapter 8? And furthermore, as we have seen, the earthly temple was understood as a copy or a blueprint, if you will, of that heavenly temple. In a way, we could say the Jerusalem temple was truly like an outer court of the heavenly temple. It was connected to the heavenly temple in as much as it was built as a copy of it. Yet, like those who stood in the outer court of the earthly temple during Old Testament times, unable to enter into the main sanctuary, those who worshipped in the Jerusalem temple did not actually enter into the heavenly liturgy. So the meaning of chapter 11 could be understood as follows. Since the saints now enter into the heavenly liturgy, the earthly temple, which is a kind of outer court of the heavenly temple, is no longer necessary. Gentiles, namely the Romans, will destroy it. That is a huge point for us as we begin to venture deeper into the book of Revelation to appreciate how one is a type or blueprint of another and how ultimately one is a sharing or participation in the other. Uh, Benedict XVI once called liturgy as the already but not yet, right? The already in so far as it is a type or prototype and not yet in that we are not in heaven, right? <laughs> okay, let us close with a word of prayer in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good and gracious God, we do just give you special thanks and praise for the gift of the book of Revelation, a book so rich in its imagery and so deep in its spiritual application. We pray for the grace of God to grasp both the imagery and the spiritual application. And as always, we do so as we pray through the intercession of Our Lady. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen, and God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.